All right, guys, welcome to this uh, very special edition today of uh, my su the Supplement Training Mastermind group. We typically do this behind uh, closed doors, and this is kind of a gated thing, but we wanted to do something really special for the industry today because um, I believe that this is a really important topic that is shaking the way people think of the industry, and it's been highly talk talked about over the course of the last few weeks uh, as there's been some changes in uh, some laws in Florida and what I typically tell people and what I typically let them know is that what happens in Florida is what typically will happen across the country. Uh, that's usually the first step uh, in, in writing policies and writing uh, laws that ultimately spread across the rest of the nation. I always use Florida and Texas as the two main examples, um, you know, as to what you can expect to see in your neck of the woods, whether that be anywhere in the nation. Uh, and so I wanted to do something and bring in an expert trainer, answer your guys' questions and bring in someone that I know knows their stuff when it comes to Florida and this law in particular. And uh, when we were looking for someone, I, I, I was really excited that Remington Huggins was uh, willing to come on here and talk to us about this stuff because I, I believe that he's got some of the most knowledgeable uh you know, knowledge in the industry when it comes to this particular area of law and everything that he's got going on. So I'm going to add uh, Remington and he's also, uh, we've also got Dale Shelton with us today. And so I want to bring them both on here. How's Guys, welcome to the stream. John, what's going on, bud? Not yeah, much, my friend. It's so good to see you. Yeah, you too, Dale. Thank you for joining us and for being a part of this. Um, it's a lot of, a lot of moving pieces here and a lot of stuff has transpired over the course of the last a uh, few weeks. And, uh, this is one of those things that, um, I don't think, I mean, you, you guys are probably paying more attention to it than I was. I didn't even see this one coming, but it really kind of shook, shook the industry to its core in a lot of ways. And thankfully there's been some things that have happened since then that have maybe lessened this blow for the time being, but this, this, uh, this beast is still out there. It, John, it, it sure is. And, and Hey, first and foremost, I want to uh, thank you for, uh, inviting me and, and Dale to come onto your show with the Mastermind Supplement Training uh, Group here program. Uh, everybody out there, you know, John Dye, when it comes to this industry, is one of the most respected individuals. And, and so, seriously, it's an honor for me and Dale to be on here, first and foremost. And uh, man, it's just every time I get a chance to see you, bud, I I'm going to jump on it. I, I, I surely am. But, uh, oh, man, thank you. John, John I appreciate is, you. Yeah, man. And John is 100% is correct. When John first asked me to uh, to present, if you will, or be interviewed in regards to this program, uh, that was roughly a month ago, give or take. Since then, something very important has happened. Uh, and it's in it happened in Tallahassee in which an injunction uh, was granted in the actual court. Uh, Dale Shelton, who is here today with me, is one of my partners with the property claims attorneys. Uh, he has rolled up his sleeve and he has dived into this injunction. If anybody has any questions whatsoever, uh, we're here to answer those. Um, and we're also here to go over the actual, uh, you know, Senate Bill 76 and uh, to answer any questions anybody has. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to do this because it is important. And all the contractors, whether you're in the state of Florida, like you said, John, because you did steal my line, I was going to say the Mecca of all this starts in either Florida or Texas, and then it just gradually snowballs to other states. Uh, so it, I don't care if you're in Missouri, if you're in California, stuff like this is going to happen in your particular state. So, uh, you know, we're here to talk. We're here to, you know, 
jump in into the weeds a little bit and 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 tell contractors you know what you can and what you can't do uh, but i do want to make it clear just a little disclaimer is this is our opinion this is our legal opinion okay there's going to be many opinions that might differ from dale and i's okay uh, but we want to tell you what we believe as professionals in this in this industry uh, of how to stay in your lane without crossing over and maybe getting in trouble. And uh, that's what we want to do. But again, I would say uh, please consult with your own attorney about any advice or any type of substance that we talk about today. Uh, hey, Dale, give us a little uh, two cents on, on what's going on with this injunction. Yeah, well, I guess um, first and foremost, thank you for having me on. As all y'all will see here in a minute, I am nowhere near as polished as Remington is for uh, the presentation part of these things. I'm used to arguing in front of uh, judges and such, so it's a little bit different. Um, so bear with me there. Um, so big picture, what do we have? Uh, in June of this year, Governor DeSantis signed in um, the law. I believe it was like June 11th, uh, 2021. And what he signed into effect was Senate Bill 76. Senate Bill 76 contains a lot of different statutory changes therein, um, impacting the regulation of the insurance industry. Um, a large portion of it has a lot of information that doesn't really pertain to anything that we're doing here, so we won't be touching on it. Um, there's another portion on it that tangentially relates to what we're doing here as it impacts attorneys and attorney's fees, which kind of impacts claims. Uh, we'll save that for the end. If there's any questions on that, I don't think it's worth jumping into right off the get. Um, but most importantly, there are a few different portions of Senate Bill 76 that apply directly to contractors. Um, from the time that Senate Bill 76 to present, a, uh, a complaint was filed in federal court um, in the district court for the Northern District of Florida, Tallahassee Division. And this was filed by Gale Force Roofing and Restoration LLC against Julie Brown in her official capacity of Secretary of the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation. Um, I'll be referring to that as the DBPR going forward. So what I want to do real quick is I, I'm assuming most people here really want to know, OK, you're going to go over the law that got passed, but we just heard that a portion of it got rendered unconstitutional, maybe, um, which I'll touch on in more detail. So where do we really stand? So I'm going to kind of do a brief overview of how the injunction and the portions of Senate Bill 76 pertain to contractors. And then what we'll do is we can dive more specifically into the remaining portions of Senate Bill 76 that are still in full force and effect. So that's kind of the big picture overview. Um, John, do I need any permission for you to share my screen or do I just click the button again? And click, click the button, man. You should be good. Okay. Uh, and I see your and I see your questions coming in too, first off. And thank you guys for that. I'll be, we'll, we'll get to those here in a couple minutes. Um, when when uh after he's done but there's there's some cool questions already coming in that i want to make sure that we get answered absolutely well hey uh tyler sets me up perfect um so tyler's question here is oh sweet excellent um if a law goes to preliminary injunction does the entire senate bill 76 go to a preliminary injunction Dale, this is this is a great question 
This is this is what we're here for, and I, I and I love it because everybody's asking themselves the same question. And Dale did specific research on this to give his best legal opinion as to what is actually in play with the injunction when it comes to the Senate Bill seventy six versus what is not in play. Dale, go for it, bud. Yeah. So on the outset, let's. I promised uh, all the people on the screen with me, I wouldn't go too much into depth. A little backdrop on me is after law school, I got hired on to teach the bar exam. I just, I'm naturally good at this kind of stuff for whatever reason, but I have a tendency to go way too deep in the weeds, uh, depending on who it is I'm talking to. So y'all pull me back if I go too much. I'll, but, I'll pull you back if we're going too far in the weeds here. Okay, so big picture. What happened was, Initially, a complaint got filed in federal court alleging that certain portions of Senate Bill 76 violate and infringe upon our First Amendment rights of freedom of speech. Okay, The First Amendment for freedom of speech case law has developed over a lot, a lot of years that breaks that into component parts. Um, what we're really talking about here is uh, commercial speech which has a different analysis assigned to it. The specifics of the analysis aren't, I think that's where I'd go too much in detail. So I'll move on from that. So what's important is for a preliminary injunction, one of the factors they look at is the likelihood of success on the merits of the underlying complaint for the portions that are being called into question their constitutional validity thereof. So when the preliminary injunction is issued, that in and of itself does not render these particular portions that I'm about to show, it does not render them unconstitutional. All it's doing is showing that, hey, there's a high likelihood of success that eventually these will get rendered unconstitutional. Therefore, in order for protected speech to not be chilled due to self-censorship out of fear of penalty, reprimand, uh, fine, the court entered an injunction specifically enjoining the DBPR from enforcing the punishment mechanism related to certain portions of the statute. So I just talked very vaguely. Let me do a uh, screen share here in a second and we will talk more specifically. And, and everybody, DBPR is the Department of Business and Professional Responsibility in the state of Florida, just for everybody out there. Okay, so screen share, here we go. Find it. And I, I would like to say, guys, that, so we all know about UPA. Every, everybody that's a contractor, a public adjuster, attorney, appraiser, whatever it might be that's in this insurance restoration industry knows what UPA is. And when I've done presentations in the past, I've always had three main rules that if a contractor, uh, you know, really, really concentrates on, they are going to be, I would say, 75 to 80 percent in the clear. There's always, you know, exceptions to the rule and other types of scenarios. But the three rules that I always stick with when it comes to UPA and being a contractor is number one, don't act like an attorney. Don't talk about law. Don't talk about statute. Uh, do not try to be an attorney. All right. Number two, do not talk policy language. 
All right. That's when you're 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 stepping into the lane of a, pu a licensed public adjuster. That's why they have that license is so they can talk policy language. OK, don't do that. And number three, do not negotiate a claim. What is negotiating? It's not you writing an Xactimate estimate or you don't have to even do an Xactimate. For some reason, everybody believes you do in this industry. You don't have to, even though the insurance carriers want you to. But having an estimate and submitting that estimate to an insurance carrier is not negotiating a claim. Negotiating a claim is if you're at $100,000, the insurance carrier's estimate is at $50,000 and you put in writing to the insurance carrier, hey, let's split the baby on this. I'll do it for 75,000 and I'll do this job. That's negotiating. So there's a little fine line between that. This Senate bill sits, in my opinion, impedes a little bit more on the contractors when it comes to advertisement and soliciting actual business. So they're trying to shrink your scope of what you can do as a contractor. As we already know, there's a scope through UPA and they're just trying to shrink it more giving you less business, less ability to talk to homeowners and policyholders uh, and for insurance companies to pay out on roof claims. That I mean, that's what it is. Big picture. Again, they all let you go in about this injunction and what portions of Bill 76. They are the court in Tallahassee is saying that, hey, I think there's a high probability that this could be unconstitutional. So they all let you take it from there, bud. Thank you. Okay, so on the screen right now, what this is, is just the second to last page of the preliminary injunction that was issued. Um, as you can see, it's actually 44 pages. This was a very fun read. Um, okay, so this is what I want to point out specifically. The and who's the defendant, Dale, in, in this action? Uh, DBPR. Well, technically, Julie Brown, who is the secretary for the DBPR. So it, it's not worth going into the details right now as to why they like named her specifically. But basically, our state is immune unless from uh, they have sovereign immunity. We can't sue our state unless they waive the sovereign immunity. So you got to find the right state agent. But anyway. Um, OK, so this injunction is enjoining, saying the court is saying you're not allowed to take these actions, defendant, meaning the Department of Business and Professional Regulation, who by the terms of the statute, have the vested power and authority to enforce violations thereof. Specifically, defendant DBPR must take no steps to enforce Florida statute sections 489.1472A, 3, and 4B as they pertain to prohibited, prohibited advertisements until otherwise ordered. Okay, so I'm going to move this over. So what I have right here is basically Senate Bill 76. It's a three-page document that I use for helping educate contractors on the new law. I took 70 bill, Senate Bill 76 personally and broke it down and basically made it readable, right? The versions that get posted, it's like non nonsense trying to read it just verbatim off the page. So substantively, this is Senate Bill 76. Format-wise, my own formatting. I, I uh, added in all the underlining, italics, and stuff like that just to help make stuff jump out. Okay, so 
that injunction said the DVPR is enjoined from enforcing 2A, 3, and 4B, okay, to the extent that it has to do with a prohibited advertisement, which necessarily incorporates section one, which is a definition section, okay? So big picture, all these things here not highlighted are still in play. So in order to answer Tyler's question specifically, no, the entirety of Senate Bill 76 is not enjoined. It's not part of the preliminary injunction because the constitutional challenge here was not Senate Bill 76 as a whole or not even the entirety of uh, Florida Statute 489.147, which was created therefrom. It's specifically the prohibitions on freedom of speech. So where does that come in? 2A, a contractor may not directly or indirectly engage in any of the following practices. Soliciting, which is a defined term above, a residential property owner by means of a prohibited advertisement. So something important to point out here is you actually impliedly, because of how the statute's written, you can technically still do these things regardless of the injunction as it relates to a commercial property owner, first and foremost. Secondly, prohibited advertisement. This is what's at the heart of the constitutional challenge. Let's go look at the definition of what a prohibited advertisement is. Any uh, means, any written or electronic communication by a contractor that encourages, instructs, or induces a consumer to contact a contractor or public adjuster for the purpose of making an insurance claim for roof damage. This term includes, but is not limited to, door hangers, business cards, magnets, flyers, pamphlets, and emails. So what I'd like to do here is let's go and make this nice and specific. Uh, let me find. And what they're saying, guys, is the court in Tallahassee believes that the actual plaintiff in this action has a great possibility or probability of this particular section of this law being unconstitutional because they're limiting the speech of the contractor not to be able to solicit in the ways that they were last year, just for instance. Uh, that is specifically big picture what this court is saying to everybody in the state of Florida right now. So what we have here, thank you, Remington. So what we have here is this is directly pulled from the injunction, the court inserted as an exhibit into their order um, the actual door hanger, which is what the uh, statute was talking about. And we can see the language on here. Call us now for a free inspection. You may qualify for a new roof. Your roof may have storm damage from hail or wind. Damage that insurance covers. Okay. During oral arguments, from what I can tell from the way the judge wrote his order, Counsel for the DBPR specifically said, yeah, this is the exact type of thing that, in our opinion, would violate 
the prohibition on uh, prohibited solicitation, this type of door hanger. This is what was being argued about. Uh, Gale Force went so far as to let the court know, hey, it's our entire business model. We reach out and offer free inspections. We let people know that insurance might cover the work. In the event after our inspection that we think we can move forward, we offer to sign them up on an assignment of benefits insurance con or a construction contract, whereby we agree to do the scope of work in exchange for the insurance proceeds provided. That's our business model court. We're not trying to do anything illegal. DBPR was arguing, hey, by you doing that, it could potentially lead to homeowners being herded down a path towards fraud, herded down a, herded down a path towards uh, wrongful or overinflated insurance claims, things of that nature that are all very speculative. The key thing here is the statute itself does not distinguish between truthful, honest communication and fraudulent and or misleading communication, right? If we look at this, there's nothing in here that says for purpose of making an insurance claim for roof damage that is otherwise unfounded in fact or law or, you know, any kind of qualification like that. The key thing is this is overbroad. It is prohibiting both truthful, honest communication to the consumer, as well as potentially fraudulent or misrepresented information. That's the key thing for the statutory challenge here, because the statute then is not written to then have, quote, a reasonable fit for the uh, goals that the uh, DBPR is advancing here. Um, so what does that mean for you contractors out there? Well, it means this. As it sits right now, I want to be perfectly clear about this. Even these highlighted sections with the injunction there, this is still technically Florida law. The preliminary injunction, while the court was very, very, very express and affirmative that they believe that it's going to ultimately be held to be unconstitutional, these specific parts, it still technically Florida law. All this injunction does is prevents the DBPR from enforcing these penalties in subsections three and four B. I would hope that everyone watching the show as a contractor is actually a licensed contractor, which is a smart thing to do. I advise as an attorney to get your license if you don't have one. Um, so I'm just going to focus on subsection three. A contractor who violates this section is subject to disciplinary proceedings as set forth in 49.129. That's the statute that generally gives the DBPR the power to regulate and do what it needs to do. Um, and a contractor may receive up to a $10,000 fine for each violation of this section, each door hanger, right? $10,000 fine potentially. So the, the logical question that follows is, Okay, well, if it's still technically Florida law right now, but they're enjoined from enforcing it, what happens if I continue to advertise with door hangers like the one that we saw with Gale Force? So here is my lawyer CYA for myself. I'm just going to call it as it is because this isn't my area of specialty. This really starts to get into administrative law. Right. Uh, but I did some, uh, I made some phone calls, talked to some people that I know, and there's some trusted sources. 
And this is the way that we think it shakes out, but we heavily advise you if you plan on engaging in conduct that is technically falls within this prohibited means of advertisement, consult an attorney that specializes in administrative law and to let you can guide you more accurately. That being said, disclaimer out of the way, this is what we believe is the case. As it sits, obviously, if you start violating the statute now, while this preliminary injunction is in place, you don't have to worry about enforcement. The federal court has said the DBVR is expressly not allowed to enforce it. Okay, so what does that, so if we go forward and the preliminary injunction never gets lifted because the statute's actually, the portion of it is actually found to be unconstitutional, well, you're in the clear. You have nothing to worry about probability is in favor of that actually being the outcome. Now, I'm not saying highly, I'm not assigning a direct percentage to it. I'm saying if we're doing a coin flip, it's in my personal opinion, it's slightly better than a coin flip looking at the judge's order. That being said, let's talk worst case scenario for a second. You go out for the time being, you engage in these prohibited advertisements, then the injunction gets lifted and the statute then is not found to be unconstitutional. Well, obviously, as soon as that injunction gets lifted, if it does, you need to cease and desist from doing any prohibited acts because you're no longer protected. Secondly, what happens to any of the acts that you did while the injunction was in place, but now the injunction has been lifted and the statute hasn't been rendered unconstitutional? Are you uh, in trouble? So, this is what my disclaimer was going to and everything else. In that situation, the way that the statute is written and the orders placed upon a DVPR, they are legally obligated to investigate every complaint that comes to them. So who do we know is likely going to be very, very hot on the heels of filing complaints? The insurance companies or agents thereof, whoever it may be. So all this flood of complaints then would come into the DVPR. They're forced to then go investigate because the law requires them to. Okay, so what you can expect then is that you're going to get investigated. So if you're doing these uh, types of prohibited advertisements, I think it's very, very important that you have some internal system that tracks the exact date of when you did them. In the event that the injunction gets lifted, because then if a bunch of complaints come in and they start looking into each individual complaint, the investigation, as long as you can clearly show that that act was taken while the injunction was in place, that investigation should come to an end in a conclusion as soon as the DBPR is able to recognize that that pro quote prohibited advertisement took place during the term of the injunction. That's the key thing here. So that's what we have to be on the lookout for. Now, potentially, they could continue forward. Then you'd have to go hire an attorney to help represent you in it. Maybe you ultimately win, but you still have to include those thoughts. This is me just fully advising you on the things to be aware of. That being said, I think probability is that this injunction stays in place until the merits of the case get ruled upon at which point an order is going to come out definitively letting us know whether or not this particular portion of the uh, statute is rendered unconstitutional. 
if it is rendered unconstitutional, which probability seems to be in favor thereof, then injunctions lifted because the statute's rendered unconstitutional and they can't enforce it anyway. And the need for the injunction goes away. Um, so John, there. John, let me, let, let me give you, so this is, this is big because this is, it, it's a gray area. It, it truly is because we don't know what's going to happen a couple months from now, a couple weeks from now, when this is ultimately ruled on, if it is unconstitutional or not. Uh, big picture wise, you as a contractor, if you are going to practice in a sense of putting out any type of door hangers, business cards, magnets, flyers, whatever it might be that might induce a policyholder to call you to do an inspection and to file an insurance claim. The key is make sure you have a date of when those flyers, magnets, bulletins were sent out, okay? So if you are going to practice and violate this uh, Bill 76 in, in the sense of solicitation, it's gonna be some more secretary work, right? You, when was this sent out? What's the dates? What exact uh, advertisements were sent out? Um, that's what needs to happen. Uh, me as an attorney, if I am talking to a contractor, if you don't want to deal with any of that, if you don't have the manpower to have this documentation of when this solicitation was sent out or these advertisements were sent out, stay in the green. Don't do it because this is the type of situations. If you're not organized and you don't have that manpower in the office, it could circle around and bite you in the butt. And uh, we don't, I don't want that to happen. So I want to be clear uh, that right now they can't enforce that law as in hit you with a $10,000 penalty. But in the future, um, if it is, the conclusion is that this is not unconstitutional and there is investigations, have your paperwork in line showing that, look, the only time you did this was during the time where there was an injunction that has been enforced uh, upon Bill 76. Uh, Dale, big picture wise, it, it, did I miss anything in, in regards to that big overview? No, I, I think you're directly on point, Rem. And here, I'll, uh, I'll stop my screen share. Um, I, I think a way to look at it is as it relates to the back office work, if they decide to continue forward uh, doing these types of uh, advertisements. Um, at, view it as your insurance policy, you know, no, no pun intended, or maybe it is, I guess I'm supposed to be witty on this thing right now, not just strictly an attorney, but uh, <laughs> take the pun if you want it. Um, but no, seriously, view it as your insurance policy, because what's going to happen when they start investigating, they're going to go talk to the homeowner. When did you get this? Well, if we're months and months and months down the road, people's memory fades, man. How are they going to remember? Then we get into a he said, she said battle where if the DBPR gets to a point to where they are allowed to enforce this and they were enjoined from doing so for a while and they watched a bunch of contractors still engage in this anyway, you think they're going to be coming with mittens on their hands? No, right? If they have any gloves on their hands, it's going to be the UFC style ones that are only designed to protect their knuckles, not help you right? That's what's going to go on. 
So you and when you go to an attorney to help you for representation for such an investigation, heaven forbid it gets to that point. The attorney is going to ask you, what evidence do you have that that solicitation happened during the injunction period? That'd be the first thing I'd want to ask. Or Absolutely. are we going to sit here and have a battle of affidavits playing he said, she said, which is not a good spot to find yourself in, especially if a $10,000 fine for each violation, well, that could add up very quickly if you're doing mass door hangers, right? So we don't want to, if you're going to engage in that, hedge your bets. Every one of those door hangers could possibly have a $10,000 price tag on it. So way to look at it. So a little extra secretarial work. I mean, one thing that I would suggest doing is if you do runs of them, actually put the date sent or something like that on the door hanger itself or on whatever it is you're sending out. So the actual thing they would be arguing about has a date on it. Um, however right. you want to track it. I think right. that would be a good idea. 100%. So, so guys, contractors, that is what this injunction's about. All right. And we tried to break it down because everybody's been asking. I can't tell you how many text messages and phone calls I've received in the last week and a half, two weeks when this injunction actually came out in Tallahassee. That big picture wise, we tried to shrink it down in, into 30 minutes. Um, Dale and I could go on for seven hours, but uh, <laughs> we don't want to bore you. And what we did was just try to just boil it down to terms in which uh, you know, anybody can talk about and, and, and interpret of, of what they are trying to enforce or trying to say that might be unconstitutional. Dale, with, with that being said, in regards to the injunction, let's continue on Bill 76 on what actually has changed and what is enforceable in the state of Florida as it pertains to contractors. And I think the first provision would be 2B because the courts did not say that that could be potentially unconstitutional. Uh, I'll let you dive into that one right now. Yeah, well, here, let's we'll put it on the screen for everybody. And this kind of answers Zach's question when it comes to referral fees. Uh, 2B kind of brushes on it a little bit, uh, <clears throat> if, that, if, if that is allowed or not. Yeah, that was, that was Tyler. And, and Zach, thank you for coming in here, too. I, I see Zach Willard's on here. Uh, I think Zach's one of the owners of Gale Force Roofing. Uh, oh, yeah, we'll definitely connect with you as well. Uh, I'd like to get uh, some some information from them. But yeah, like it seems, yeah, we see this injunction. So everyone's like kind of like chomping at the bit thing. And this whole thing has kind of been stopped, but it's really hasn't. And there's a lot of it that has still gone through as law. And even the injunction part in this whole, this whole change, I think gives us a really good, look into what the carrier's intentions are right now and what they're they're pushing their lobbyists are pushing to make a reality yeah i i couldn't agree more with that um that statement because to me it, the injunction i'll just finish wrap that up real quick my personal opinion it's not trying to prevent homeowners from being herded down a path to fraud you could do that by prohibiting fraudulent and mis represented information to homeowners. What they're trying to do is prevent homeowners from being educated on their rights truthfully in order to protect from more and more claims coming in because obviously the contractors are doing mass advertisement. And, and this may be like my opinion on this, but it seems like over the course of the last 
year and a half, two years since Hurricane Irma. We've heard nothing but rate increases and craziness of uh, insurance companies dropping homeowners in Florida, going nuts, talking about how bad they're getting hurt in Florida, raising this awareness amongst the consumers so that they would in turn vote yes for this bill. It's a propaganda. It is a propaganda machine. And like what we were talking about before we came on, this is uh, one of the reasons I was complimenting uh, John so much on his platform and what he's doing, bringing contractors together to have the free flow of information and everything. I tell homeowners, client, whoever it is all the time, think about it. Like in theory, five on the insurance company side, five people that are high level executives at five of the biggest insurance companies could literally just have a group chat on their cell phone between them. And from that single group chat could influence billions of dollars of insurance funds, lobbying, laws getting passed, everything else. They have a very easy united front. While they may be in competition with each other in terms of uh, getting more policyholders signed up with them, they're not in competition as it relates to we all want the laws to you know make us pay, have to pay out the least so we can keep the most. That's their goal at the end of the day. Um, on the homeowner side, on the insurance side, policyholder side, we don't have the same united front, right? We have a slew of law firms that represent individual homeowners, ours being one of them. We have a slew of public adjusting companies doing the same thing and a slew of contractors doing the same thing. How do we bring all of this together? And I just think we're very, very blessed to live in a time right now of technology, the ability for all of us to connect throughout the nation by simply hopping on our computer and doing this or smartphone. So, yeah, yeah I'm echoing your sentiments, John, is basically what I'm doing, doing in long. And John, I can't agree with you more. I, I, it's my opinion that the insurance carriers through their lobbyists and everything else, commercials, whatever it might be, it's a scare tactic. For, for this type of bill, 76, uh, to be passed. Uh, guys, I don't care if Hurricane Irma hit Southwest Florida or not. Guess what? The premiums are going to get increased anyways. Uh, my father, ironically enough, uh, collect, he worked for an insurance company his entire life. In the early 70s, he would knock on doors and collect uh, quarter premiums every month. Guys, <laughs> that, that is unheard of now. Um, so, and that was like the mob, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things where guys, premiums are going to be increased. They're going to, it doesn't matter if a hurricane hits Florida or not in the next 10 years. Uh, it's my opinion. I am very confident 10 years from now, premiums are going to be raised. Okay. It is just part of the business and it's really part of every industry. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter what, if it's insurance or not. Prices are going to increase, you know, so um, it's a scare tactic. They're doing a great job. John, platforms like this that you've created it is trying to just provide education to everybody in our industry and we need it. So, you know, again, uh, I'm piggybacking off of what Dale said as well. And, and, and this, is, this is a great way to do it. Uh, you know, like we said earlier, that 2A is the main provision or section of this bill that is the uh, subject of the injunction. However, uh, you know, Zach, not the entire bill, and I know we've emphasized this, but the entire bill is not considered 
uh, potentially unconstitutional. And I, I want to let the contractors know we, we can just, you know, hit the highlights of, of what actually is being enforced today as we speak right now on this mastermind show. Uh, Dale, do you want to hit on that? Or John, do you think we need, uh, do you have any other questions in regards no, let's, to the injunction? Let's hit on this. I want to, I want to, Want to get this information out? So let's talk. Let's talk okay, about what, let's is, uh, what is actually enforceable and what is actually changed. Okay. okay. So what what is enforceable is almost everything else. Basically, is the way to think about it. Like we have one little portion that the injunction applies to. Everything else you see here, not highlighted, that's one hundred percent enforceable. It is being enforced. It will be enforced. I'd have to assume they're even more motivated now to enforce the rest of this after one portion got enjoined. Um, so uh, subsection two leads out with a contractor may not directly or indirectly engage in the following practices. We'll skip 2A because that's what we've talked about at length and that's what the injunction pertains to. 2B, offering to a residential property owner a rebate gift gift card cash coupon waiver of any insurance deductible or anything else in value in exchange for allowing the contractor to conduct an inspection of the residential property owner's roof or making an insurance claim for the damage to the residential property's owner's roof when remington and i were talking about this a good way to kind of think about these different portions of uh, senate bill 76 there's kind of three troughs, if you will. There's a section of these that is essentially regulating how you get to the property initially, then what you can do once you're at the property, and then some additional regulation on what you need to do when it's signing a homeowner up under an insurance proceeds contract, whether that be strictly contingency-based with a direction to pay, or whether it be assignment of benefits. 2B is regulating essentially how you get to the property, at least 2B1, right? You're offering, you're offering something of value in exchange to, uh, to the homeowner exchange for them to let you get on the roof. Okay. Guys, this is how I put it. You're negotiating a way to do an inspection. Oh, that's good. I like that's that. That's how I look at that. You're negotiating. Let me step foot on your roof and I'll give you a rebate. I'll give you a gift card to Starbucks. I'll give you a gift card to the American Contractors Summit this fall. That's that's what it's doing. Yeah. Um, or if you really want to be looking at some handcuffs, I'll waive your deductible if you let me get on this roof. And, and, and guys, we know that's already been a, a law, especially in the state of Florida. Um, this is just... Everybody's kind of contractors have gone around the deductible talk by saying, hey, we can do X, Y, Z for you, though. This Senate Bill 76 doesn't allow you to do that negotiation to step up on somebody's property. That's the way I look at it, Dale. Yeah, I, I think that's a good summation of it. Um, so if we go then to 2B2. I hope we didn't need a law for this to be in place, but basically don't offer something of value to incentivize the homeowner to file a damn claim. Just sorry. Hey, John, am I allowed to cuss on this? <laughs> Go ahead, man. 
You're good. Damn is good, Dale. That you're good with that one. I'm permitted with that one. I'll, I I talk like a. Sailor. This isn't that bull show. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, so uh, so just don't do this. I think this is relatively obvious, but obviously, don't financially incentivize a homeowner to go make an insurance claim. That's just number one. It's not a good look. Number two, if it's actually something that's going to be contested on the claim basis anyway. That's going to come out when we get to deposition, right? They always ask, opposing counsel always asks, why did you make a claim? Well, if the person actually answers honestly under oath, and they say, well, I don't know. The contractor said they'd give me money if I filed a claim. Well, that really, really cuts against the underlying validity of the claim itself, not to mention it subjects you to fines and penalties and reprimands. Okay. Um, 2C. Offering, delivering, receiving, or accepting any con compensation, inducement, or reward for the referral of any services for which property insurance proceeds are payable. And Dale, I think this specifically answers Zach's uh, question that he had earlier in regards to referrals. I think this maybe might hit it right on the head. He said mainly talking about the referral fees. So Zach, yes, the referral uh, language within Bill 76 is still enforceable. Just making that clear. And I think the reason that that wasn't contested is that's not really any form of protected commercial speech, right? Um, maybe that could get challenged on some other bases, but that's likely going to stay in effect based upon the legal standards. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it or disagree with it. I'm just saying based upon the legal standards that the court's going to be constrained to, I don't see that going away. Um, so yeah, referral fees. Okay. Um, 2D. So now 2D is really getting to, now we're regulating your, you're at the property. Presumably you made it there legally. You didn't violate anything to step foot. Now you're talking with the homeowner. Okay. This is where you don't want to start. Remington already hit on this. Interpreting poli policy provisions or advising an insured regarding coverages or duties under the insured's property insurance policy or adjusting a property insurance claim on behalf of the insured, unless the contractor holds a license as a public adjuster under the particular uh, or relevant Florida statute regulating such. And I, I'd like to step in here and say for you supplementers out there, this is where the bill 76 somewhat comes into play Okay, you already stepped on the property. You already have uh, performed the work. Okay, so all provisions within that bill have already been satisfied. You've already complied with all of those. There's a supplement that's involved. You get in there, the decking is rotted, right? 2D for you supplementers, it's going to be tough. I get it. Trust me. I, I put myself in your shoes to try to figure this out but do not talk about the policy language. Get the actual homeowner, your client, to contact the insurance carrier and ask if your policy allows you to supplement, okay? That's what you need to do. Uh, it's, it's very important for you supplementers because you don't wanna stand up on a roof and, 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 and get down and tell a policy holder, hey, your policy, is going to pay for this supplement. Although you're not talking specific policy language, I just don't want you guys being in that gray area. So just simply get that homeowner 
to get on the phone, call the uh, insurance agent or not agent, excuse me, adjuster and ask if the policy uh, allows for supplements. And if so, my contractor has a good faith estimate for this supplement and I want to submit it over to you. That's the steps that you need to take if you really want to be in the clear for you supplementers out there. And Rem, did you provide me with the perfect segue as it related to a good faith estimate? That takes us to 2E. Remember, it starts out with saying a contractor may not directly or indirectly engage in the following practices. You're not allowed to provide them with an agreement authorizing repairs, and this is related to an insurance claim, without providing a good faith estimate of the itemized and detailed cost of services and materials for the repairs undertaken pursuant to the property insurance claim. So this language right here is essentially directly pulled from the uh, Florida AOB statute that got enacted in July, 2019. That was one of the requirements is that you had to have an estimate attached to the agreement at the time that the agreement was executed. While this statute does not specifically state what I'm about to say, I'm going to let you know that the development of Florida law is seemingly making it pretty clear that this is what you need to do. You need to make sure this is the way that I've been advising uh, my contractor AOB clients specifically. You need to make sure that, think about it this way, you have your agreement for them to execute that's allowing you to do the work. Now you have your signed contract. Part of that agreement needs to be the estimate. So really think about that, not to give them the agreement and then a few days later you send them the estimate. It needs to be physically attached to it. So if you wanna think about it as the staple test, are all these things stapled together at the time it's handed to the homeowner and they sign it? That's what you need to be accomplishing or DocuSign or however it is you're providing it to the homeowners. Um, so Sounds exactly like they need sumo Rem quote. Oh, go ahead. Sounds like they need some sumo quote going on there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not familiar. Sumo quote? It's, it's a really awesome estimating software um, that would give them all that information in one estimate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, something I want to touch on here, though, because I've personally received a lot of questions from contractors regarding this. What constitutes a good faith estimate of the itemized and detailed cost of services and materials? Is that one line item? Hey, I'll redo your entire roof for X amount of dollars. That probably doesn't suffice. Is it two line items? This is what we're going to charge for removal. This is what we're going to charge for replacement. Mm, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. This is one of those cases, though, where, remember, these violations subject you to potentially a $10,000 fine for each violation. Now, while there, in my opinion, there's no legal, like, number of line items that then makes it good faith, I just, you know, think about a macro that you have set up inside of Xactimate if you do that. You know, if we have, uh, you know, a line item for tear off and removal, then there's a number of squares next to it. Then there's a price per square. 
And then it's a simple computation that way. Okay, that's good. Then we add another line item for underlayment, another line item for whatever roofing material is going back on, whether it be tile, metal, shingle, what have you, mod bit. Then, I mean, I would have, you know, if you include a few line items in there for either on or off ridge vent, flashing, gutters, you know, I, 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 I am, my gut feel, because this is going to come down to an attorney, if this gets contested in like an insurance claim, it's going to come down to an attorney sitting in front of a judge during a motion to dismiss hearing needing to argue that this actually satisfies, your estimate actually satisfies this provision. The judge is in an interesting spot of kind of, it's a merger of fact and law that they're deciding and they have a lot of discretion therein. You, a judge, in my personal opinion, especially if you get one who is not, who is pro insurance company, if you will, or at least anti AOB contractor. Uh, I've sat in front of my handful of those. They're going to try to be looking at it through the lens of, are they just trying to do a workaround, right? Are they really just trying to scoot around this? So I don't know, for me, somewhere eight to, tw eight to 12 line items on your, you know, pretty standard residential roof, that would seem to probably keep you pretty safe. Um, but there's no magic number, right? It's, it's going to kind of be job specific in a sense, yeah. but something to keep in mind there. Um, it, it, once again, it's a little bit of your insurance policy. It, is it better to only do a couple line items so your guys can sign people up quick on the spot in the field? Well, I mean, for what you're exchanging in speed and conversion ratio of sales, the cost to sign there too is for each of those estimates, potentially a $10,000 fine along with other disciplinary proceedings that could come. Is that balance really worth it? It's a business judgment decision at a certain point. So really, really think about it. And I, I grew, I'm the first part, a little backstory on me because it's kind of relevant right here. I'm the first person in my family to go to college and graduate, much less go to law school. Growing up, all of my dad's friends were contractors and such. So I did summers in Florida putting on roofs. I, you know, not as the technical person. I, I did summers in Florida carrying roofing materials up onto roofs from ladders because the contractor didn't use uh, use any boom trucks or anything. Also worked for GC. So I'm like, I'm, I more relate to contractors than I do attorneys, quite honestly. I understand the alpha mentality that's there, right? Th this desire of I'm going to do the least amount possible to prove a point. I get it. I'm telling you right now, the appropriate business decision is not one founded in pride and ego. It's one founded in sound business acumen. And that's an appropriate cost benefit analysis, in my opinion, of risk versus reward. So to the extent that you're making your decisions based upon, screw them, they're not going to constrain us like this. Well, if that's the flag you want to, uh, if that's the hill you want to plant your flag in and fight that fight, go for it. I'm advising otherwise. Um, so I'll leave it at that. And, and guys, here, here's my two cents on this. Use your common sense. Okay. It, is this a detailed estimate or not? And truly put yourself in somebody else's shoes and answer that question and go with your gut. 90% of the time, your gut's going to be right. All right. 
but just use that common sense. Is this a detailed good faith estimate? And if you can truly say yes, rather than no, then you're going to typically be in the clear. Like I said, about 90% of the time um, with this particular section, which is two E the second paragraph of the outline that we have is very important for people, for contractors who supplement. Why? Because it still allows you as a contractor to supplement. This bill 76 still allows you to supplement. It specifically states a contractor does not violate this paragraph if as a result of the process of the insurer adjusting a claim, the actual cost of repairs differs from the initial estimate. What does that do? That allows you as a contractor to supplement this claim. And that's very important for you supplementers out there. And I know John, um, you know, is such an expert in the field of supplements throughout the entire country in this industry. And I want to make that clear to all you contractors in Florida. You still can supplement. All right. It, it, it really lays it out here in paragraph two. So uh, just want to let you guys know that. Uh, Dale, you want to go on to the second? I know we've almost gone an hour here, so we'll, we'll, we'll speed it up a little bit for you guys. But guys, this is very important. This is great information. It truly is. Uh, I, I put myself in the feet or the shoes of the contractor and say, what do I want to know? And, and this is what we're telling you. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll speed it up a little bit for you guys, but uh, it's, it's very important information. And Dale, so we're going to go to 4A, which has not been a part of the injunction. The courts have decided that this is not probable, that it is unconstitutional. So this is still enforceable across the state of Florida. Dale, do you want to jump into it? Yeah, sure. I mean, 4A kind of is just, this is 4A and 4B. Uh, 4A is specifically what it's saying here is, contractors don't think you're working around this by hiring some independent company to do the solicitation on your behalf, right? That's essentially what this is saying, right? An employee or non-employee who is compensated for soliciting. If you go hire a marketing company to do this, you don't get to outsource liability. It's coming back to you, okay? So keep that in mind. Um, Taking us down to five. A contractor may not execute a contract with a residential property owner to repair or replace a roof without including a notice that the contractor may not engage in the practices set forth in paragraph 2B above. Now, remember, 2B was the offering, basically offering things of value in exchange for either getting to inspect the roof or inducing the insured to make a uh, insurance claim. Um If the contractor fails to include such notice, the residential property owner may void the contract within 10 days after executing it. What's unclear from the way that the statute is structured is, does violation of this provision, is the punishment for this solely limited to the homeowner being able to void the contract within 10 days, or does it also subject you to these fines. Because remember, 3 and 4B, these are only enjoined as it relates to 
violations for the solicitation. These penalties are still there in full force and effect for all these other violations we've gone under or gone over rather that do not fall under the purview of that uh, injunction that was issued. So this is really, really easy to comply with contractors. Okay. I actually, um, I ha it's just a simple paragraph you need to insert into your uh, insurance proceeds contracts, whether AOB or non-AOB. Um, and I have an example of that right here. Um, let me get to, oh, that's the top. Here, I'll make it bigger. And, okay. and, and, con and contractors out there, if you want a copy of any of this material, uh, we'll, we'll post something here at the end of this presentation, giving you an email address. You can just send us an email and we'll be happy or glad to send it to you, or we can give it to John and he can send it out to whoever asks. So I uh, just, just want to let you know that. Okay. So this is one of the standard contracts. This is an insurance proceeds contract with the direction to pay non AOB, but it would be the same thing in our AOB contract as well. Um, as you can see, there's already all these other statutory notices that are required by Florida statute. I went ahead and highlighted this in green, not that it needs to be highlighted in green in your contract just for purpose of this presentation. This right here, this language right here will comply with the statute. Notice, pursuant to Florida statute section uh, 489.147 subsection 5, a contractor may not directly or indirectly offer blah, blah, blah. All I'm doing here, all I did was just find in a succinct way to restate what the statute says. This is the notice that you need to have there. Um, so if you put that in in your contract, you're going to be in compliance. Like Remington said, at the end of this, we'll post something so you'll have an email address to reach out as to. If all you want is just this language, we can fire you an email back with it. Um, or you can look at it right now. I mean, essentially, if you just take subsection uh, two, you can do it on your own if you want. It's essentially just taking this information here and turning it into a sentence, right? And writing it in a way that just makes sense to as it would read in the contract. Um, okay, so that, that sums up. Uh, so Senate Bill 76 created section 489.147 of Florida statutes. This statute itself did not exist before Senate Bill 76. Another thing Senate Bill 76 did was essentially amended and added to um, Florida statute 626.854. And this is a statute that specifically is designed to regulate public adjusters. But what I want to talk on is specifically subsection 15 because it incorporates contractors into and, it. And let, let me say this real quick. What we've been discussing with Senate Bill 76 is things you can't do. You can't do. You can't do. Regulating, shrinking what you as a contractor could potentially do other than my uh, two cents on this still allows you to supplement and it still does. But it's, it's more of what you can't, what you can't, what you can't. This added language that they provided in uh, 626854 are things you as a contractor can do that you're still allowed to do. And uh, Dale, if you want to, if you want to hit on those, or I can, I can hit on the first one. Uh, if you want to do your share screen on it, Dale, and it, and it states the, the prohibition against solicitation does not preclude 
a contractor from suggesting or otherwise recommending to a consumer, which is your client, that the consumer consider contacting his or her insurer to determine if the proposed repair is covered under the uh, insurance policy. So you as the contractor can suggest to your client, hey, you see this good faith estimate that I drafted for you? I recommend that you take this good faith estimate, submit it to your insurance carrier and see if this is covered under your insurance policy. That is what this paragraph is allowing you as a contractor to do in the state of Florida. Dale, is there any more detail that you wanted to add to that particular paragraph of this uh, new added language in the bill? Uh, you just kind of froze. Are we good? Yeah. Um, so what I would uh, add there just simply is, as you see right on the end of it, it says, except as it relates to solicitation as prohibited in section 489.147. That's the exact, the solicitation prohibition in section 49.147. That's exactly what we've talked about as the injunction applying to. Um, so then that incorporates everything we already discussed about, you know, if you do decide to continue to go down that path of engaging in those types of solicitations. Um, the, uh, oh, okay, Rem, you want to do the next paragraph? Yeah, the, the second paragraph that was added, which I, I think this is, this, is, this is good. It's another, what can you do as a contractor? And I'll boil, uh, boil it down into simple terms. It allows you to discuss your bid with the actual homeowner of what is being uh, repaired and what's not in the pricing of those repairs with the homeowner. And this paragraph says that you can actually discuss your bid and your price with the insurer of the property. That means the insurance company. So you as a contractor can discuss it with the homeowner, which is your client or potential client, as well as that insurance company. However, still do not fall into the trap of negotiating, okay? You saying that, hey, look, here's my bid. It's $100,000 to do this uh, big tile roof in Southwest Florida and talking with the insurance carrier about it is different than negotiating, which is, I use the term splitting the baby on pricing because everybody knows that's negotiating, okay? Don't step in that gray area. If you're talking about line items and the insurance carrier says, well, actually show me documentation that this portion is actually damaged and you submitting a bid with some, with some documentation, uh, to me, that is not negotiating, okay? They just want you to show that this is actual damage. And if you want to play it really, really safe, have your client send it in. Uh, but this is what it allows it to do. You can talk about your bid. You can talk about your scope of work. You can talk about your price with the insurance carrier and with the homeowner. Just don't negotiate it with the insurance carrier. That's the main point of uh, paragraph two, in my opinion. Dale, do you want to fill in any gaps there? Yeah. One thing I'd uh, like to add to it from what you just said, which I'm in complete agreement with everything that you just advised on, is that don't negotiate like Rem described, but also 
if you're going to make the call to the insurance company as a contractor, a contractor who does not hold a public adjuster's license, you are not allowed to discuss policy. Okay, so let's really break that apart for a second. What does it mean to discuss policy? Now, obviously, contractor, if you're sitting there with a copy of the insurance or the uh, homeowner's uh, homeowner policy itself, reading sections to it, arguing with the adjuster, well, I think we all understand that's, you know, discussing the terms of the policy. I'm, I'm just going to bookend things. Whereas on the other end of the bookend, you simply just did what Remington said. Here's my estimate. Here are the supporting photos. This is the stuff that's damaged. And I'm being very selective on that word. All you said is this is the stuff that is damaged. No adjective, noun, verb, anything describing what caused the damage. There's no direct case law on this, but if, if I'm giving advice on how to completely stay in the clear, this is how I like to do it. And really what you just want to think about is causation. Okay, does the Florida Building Code, except for limited circumstances, such as, you know, something that might implicate, you know, the IICRC S500 or S520, where we have a certain water loss and it, it matters what type, was it gray water? Was it, you know, what type of, what actually caused it? Because that changes how you have to go about the uh, reconstruction and remediation of the property. That's different. The Florida Building Code, let's just talk just about a roof. That's what the statute's really going to. Does the Florida Building Code really care what damaged the roof? Or does it just care that it is damaged? And by and far, 99% of the time, it's really just focused on that, the fact that it is damaged in and of itself. So if you're on the phone with the insurance company, number one, those calls are recorded, right? Anything you say can and will be used against you. They're probably hoping that you call. So we all hold that on the show, cops. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? <laughs> um, who are those attorneys out in California that do the marijuana law where it's like, shut the F up Friday, something like that? <laughs> like, I think that applies here, right? Um, but uh, in, in any event, the point that I'm getting at is if you start to say this was these shingles or whatever it may be, this is clear wind damage. Why does the fact that it was damaged by wind matter? If we really, really tease that out, does the Florida Building Code really care that it was damaged by wind as opposed to someone tearing it or whatever the case may be? No. Well, why are we bringing up wind? Because that is what is generally triggered under most of these insurance policies for Florida, wind, hail, something of that nature. Um, so are you expressly discussing the terms of the policy if you say this particular piece of roofing material was damaged by wind? Mm, maybe not expressly, but the if I was the attorney on the other side trying to prosecute you for it, my question would simply be, why did it matter that it was wind? And I'd sit there quiet and wait to hear your explanation. And then I'd be able to lead you right into a corner of saying the only reason you mentioned wind is because that implicates policy coverage. Therefore, you're discussing policy. So I'm not saying I'm 100% correct on this, but what I do firmly believe is if you follow this rule and don't get into discussing causation, that in and of itself is going to keep you very, very, very much in the clear as it relates to discussing policy. Um, 
John, with you being a contractor, does that does that make sense? I know I'm talking about causation and everything, but conceptually, does that make sense? Do I need to elaborate anymore? No, absolutely. I think contractors need to stay in the lane of contracting. No, it doesn't matter why it's damaged or what caused the damage or any of that stuff. If it has to be replaced because of good construction standards and based on what uh, construction principles are applied, uh, that's where they need to stay in their lane. Um, getting into policy language, into any of the other things that are not related necessarily to to general construction standards, I don't I don't care who's paying for what. I care that. I do the job correctly and, and do things legally according to what my license allows me to do and what I'm supposed to do that's best for the policyholder or the homeowner, more importantly than any policy that's involved in that in that regard, and leave the policy language to uh, to PAs and, and you guys that are doing this day in and day out and that it actually can provide the, the homeowners the correct level of uh, service in that regard. Yeah, and, and something that just popped in my head on the spot is, I think on the supplement side of things, this is something I've ran into or not, I've handled a bunch of it uh, for one of my contractors in Jacksonville. And that is once you start doing the work, you do the tear off, then you discover a bunch of sheathing that is, let's just call it a non-nailable substrate, right? Because that's really what the building code cares about. Mm-hmm. The insurance company, if you're supplementing, saying you want a uh, payment for the sheathing, what do we know is going to be their response? Well, the policy prohibits coverage for rot, deterioration, wet and dry rot, right? They're, they're going to throw that in there. One argument that's always there, assuming that there's coverage for this under the terms of the policy, is ordinance and law coverage, right? That's one of the arguments we make, which is, hey, the contractor is not replacing this because it's uh, wet, dry rotted, whatever. They're replacing it simply because the Florida Building Code requires a solid nailable substrate. It does not have a solid nailable substrate. Therefore, we had to replace it. So this falls under the ordinance and law provision. Now, everything I just said there, you contractors aren't allowed to say a peep of that. Instantly, you're evaluating policy. So my, my point in bringing that up, though, is not that I have any specific advice on how for you to navigate that, because I think you're just going to open up a can of worms you don't want to. Um, start to think through methodically those the most common things that come up that you end up supplementing on. Which ones are you able to actually talk about, especially in the face of opposition from the insurance company without bringing in insurance law or the policy into play, rather? And then you'll be able to start to group them on your end to where you'll be able to really accurately advise the homeowner like, hey, go ahead. Here's our good faith estimate for this supplement for this damage sheathing. And then you're very prepared to know what's likely to come. So when your customer comes back to you and says, hey, they said I don't have coverage for that. Oh, not surprising. That's a common thing we see. We do recommend that you contact a licensed public adjuster or a licensed attorney that specializes in this area of law to help fully inform you on your rights under the policy. Do not make any sideways comments, suggestions that that should be covered. We can get it covered. None of that. Simply, that's what you do. You're just going to need to you know, suggest to them you need to go contact someone that specializes in this that can actually truly advise you on your coverage under the policy. Um, and so just being prepared for that, right? We're having to pivot a little bit, right? 
So it's going to limit what you can say. But what we don't want is your consumers hanging out there on an island, not knowing where to go. Your hands are tied, not being able to tell them specific information, albeit truthful. So you need to be able to direct them somewhere. Dale, do you think be cohesive? Do you think and I'm uh, I'm throwing this out there. Do you think it is okay for a contractor to have a copy of the IICRC or any type of uh, building codes and, and hand that over to the actual policyholder to review? Do you think there's anything wrong with that? On its face, if all they were doing, say, like, let's take it back to our hypothetical on uh, sheathing. If it was the specific Florida building code section related to that, the contractor shows the homeowner pictures of the damaged sheathing they found, a good faith estimate for what it's going to cost to repair, and attached there too is a copy of the relevant portion of the Florida building code that says why they have to repair slash replace that sheathing. As long as it stops there in that nice bubble, I think we're good to go because that's the Florida building code. I, this is a good way that I, I think a good thought experiment for contractors to engage in. If this was a cash job, insurance wasn't even implicated. What information would be relevant to the homeowner for why you need to do what you need to do? Well, portions of the Florida building code, letting them know, hey, I'm not, you know, just uh, blowing smoke, so to speak. This actually says I'm bound by Florida law to go perform this sheathing replacement or else we're not going to pass inspection. We're going to have to tear everything off, redo it, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fine. Now, for practical real-world purposes, uh, owners of you, contractor owners of companies and things of that nature, you need to be very, very, very cautious on how you train your boots on the ground people when they're doing that. Remember, it's not going to, the penalty is not going to fall on the salesperson. It's going to fall on the license holder of the contracting company. Right. So right. by doing that, you're essentially creating an opportunity for your salesperson to step out of bounds. Because what's the natural thing a homeowner is going to say in response? Oh, well, does that mean that the insurance company has to pay for it? So you better have a good response that is a canned response that keeps your salesman boots and the ground people in line, so to speak. Right. Uh, does that make sense, Rem? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does, guys. And um, here's here's just kind of what I'll leave you with when it comes to uh, describing the types of damages. You know, saying storm damage, wind damage, things like that. Although you're not talking policy, just to stay in the green area, let's just all be honest here. If you submit some documentation and say hurricane damage on these pictures, it doesn't matter. The insurance carrier is going to send out their independent adjuster or field adjuster or engineer to make that determination anyway. And, and in fact, it doesn't matter if it's you as the contractor or a public adjuster or me at the property claims attorneys or Dale, they're still going to send out their own person to evaluate what type of damage it is. Just do as this damage. You're in the green. You're in the clear. You don't have to worry about it. You can sleep at night. That's what I care about. You know, <laughs> I mean, really, because it doesn't matter. 
so I'll leave you with that. And guys, I just I just made this real quick just because we did throw some documentation on the screen. I want to um, you know just just show you guys a little. If you guys have any question or want the documentation, ask John and he he can get it to you. Um, or I don't, can you guys see my screen right now? Yeah. Okay. There we have an email. Contact us at propertyclaims.law. You guys have any questions or you want this documentation? If you want the contract um, that that we drafted, that in our opinion, as a disclaimer, we believe is in the green for you as a contractor in the state of Florida, uh, just send us an email. We'd be happy to or contact John and uh, we'd be happy to provide that to him. Uh, again, as a disclaimer, talk to your own attorney about what we send over to you. But hey, as we've all dis uh, described earlier is we need to collaborate. All right. They're doing it on their side for the insurance carriers. We have to keep a united front on our side and in and, and platforms like this, I know I probably said it two or three times already, but platforms like Mr. Die has uh, with the American Contractors uh, Summit and everything else, uh, it's, it, it's just fantastic. And we need to keep doing this, guys, and stay in the green and work together. And uh, John, thank you so much for having uh, Dale and I on the show. And if anybody comes with any other questions, if, if you talk with Zach and we want to do another uh, roundtable of this, uh, we're, we're prepared. We're ready to do it. So uh, you just let us know. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Remington. And uh, you guys are now aware this, uh, this took an hour and a half to go through almost. And we're, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but that's a, there's a lot of changes. These are drastic changes that the industry needs to be aware of, especially especially if you're in Florida, but I think we hit the nail on the head. Like it's going to, this is going to spread. This is the intentions of the carriers. This is where they're, uh, they test things. They try stuff in Florida and Texas, and this is where they make their initial pushes. And we see those ramifications across the entire nation over time. So this is kind of giving you some insight as to what you can expect across the country in the next coming years as, as these uh, laws begin to change and things start to uh, progress. So that's, that's awesome I, that we were able to stay ahead of it a little bit. And thank you guys for coming on the show and giving us this information and uh, sharing it with with all of our audience and the, and the contractors that are watching this today. So thank you guys so much for being a part of this. Hey, you're, you're welcome, John. Thank you, buddy. It's, it's always a pleasure. And uh, hey, man, I, I look forward to, to running into you here in the near future. Sounds good, guys. Thank you so much, everyone. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Make sure to reach out to them. If you guys have any other questions, send us a message as well. We'll be happy to uh, connect you with Remington and Dale, and they can uh, give you guys as much help as they can as well. So thank you, guys.